So with summer, I don't know if you went on a great vacation. Did anyone have an awesome vacation this summer? Yeah? Okay, I like four of you. That's awesome. But um, I'm really going to play off that four. But like maybe you're, you're uh, just picture, go here with me. You're, you're thinking about memories of an awesome vacation. You're looking at some pictures on your phone, kicking back with your family, Sunday evening, you know, just relaxing and uh, scrolling through some pictures, laughing about memories. And then all of a sudden you uh, go on Facebook and you start scrolling on Facebook. And then all of a sudden you see uh, other people's vacation photos. And then you think to yourself, all these doubts start to flood in. And you're like, man, did I have, did I have fun this summer? Did I go to the right place this summer? Did I, did I even, like, was this vacation even relaxing? Did I relax enough? And then all of a sudden you're like, I don't know. But really, it, it comes from a root thing, which I'm going to talk about today, is comparison. That's what I'm going to be talking about today. And we're going to be looking at a story of two sisters, but really, um, comparison is, I feel like, so prevalent and so um, pinpoint, we can compare so pinpoint, with pinpoint accuracy to anything, the amount of likes, better car, anything. But we've been in this series called Taboo, and um, basically what what this series has all been about is talking about things that we don't talk about in church. And so really what I want to talk about is something that I think is plagued our culture more than anything today, and that's the, the curse or the, the, the corruption of comparison. And just as a working definition of comparison, I just want to throw it up on the screen for you. Comparison is looking at other people to determine where you should be. Looking at other people to determine where you should be. And the main point I really want to get across to you today is there's no win in comparison. There's no win in comparison. Can we say that together? There's no win in comparison. Good, 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 good. So we're going to be looking at a story of two sisters. And really, I think um, there's no win in comparison. Comparison, to me, is something like an appetite, right? It's, it's something that always comes back. It's something that, like, you might, you, you always get hungry until the day that you die. So we, we're going to have this appetite, this craving of comparison until potentially the day that we die. So I'm thinking, what do we do with this craving? What do we do with it? What, what, where, where does it go? How do we conquer it? Or what do we do with it? This desire to be skinnier and better, better and healthier and, and faster and stronger and better. It's always there, no matter where you are in life. Guy, girl, young, old, it's always there. Everyone in some way struggles with this. We're going to be looking at a story of, of Leah and Rachel and Jacob. And Jacob really was um, a patriarch in the Jewish faith. He was a patriarch in the Christian faith. And right before we pick up in this story, he just tricked his brother Esau. He, uh, he traded, he, he actually tricked, he got his birthright and his blessing, the twofer, and then he had a run because Jacob's mom, Rebecca, said, yo, you got to get out of here, boy, because your, your brother's real mad at you. He might, he might kill you. So uh, Rebecca was like, hey, check it out, though. Run to your uncle Laban's house, though, because I, th- I, I think he has some cute daughters. So uh, he goes to his uncle Laban's house, and um, that's where we are going to pick up the story. And really, just to clarify, there's, um, there's polygamy in the story. Unilaterally, the Bible condemns polygamy. We do not promote that at all in Christianity. And um, even though the this, this story is kind of extreme and ironic, it is still super relevant for today. Um, so we're picking up in Genesis 29, verse 1, says this. I'm going to be reading out of the NLT version. So if you have the Bible app, switch over to the NLT version. Um, I just think it tells the story a little bit better. Genesis 29, 
Then Jacob hurried on, finally arriving in the land of the east. He saw a well in the distance. Three flocks of sheep and goats lay in an open field beside it, waiting to be watered. But a heavy stone covered the mouth of the well. And the well in that, just don't think of wishing well. Think big hole in the ground with a big rock over it. It wasn't quite like the ones with the circular stones around it. Continuing on in verse 3. It was custom there to wait for all the flocks to arrive before removing the stone and watering the animals after the stone would be placed back over the mouth of the well. Jacob went over to the shepherds and asked, where are you from, my friends? We are from Haran, they answered. Do you know a man there named Laban, the grandson of Nahor, he asked. Yes, we do, which is awesome because he was like, that is so great because I didn't have my GPS. It ran out of battery. So I was literally just following the sun. Like, has that ever happened to you? Like, you're, you're like, you have your cell phone or whatever, and it ran out of battery, and you're like, uh, I think it was in the west direction, and you're like, you know, you might actually consider stopping at a gas station, like, and asking for direction, something that is totally un, like, I've never done that in my entire life. <laughs> Our culture would never do that. My, my age group would never do that. So he's, he's totally relieved, and he's kind of like, he's been in the desert for a while, so he might be a little bit hungry, a little bit thirsty. Um, so he, he asked him, verse 6, is he doing well, Jacob asked. Yes, he's well, they answered. Look, here comes his daughter, Rachel, with the flock now. And so Jacob is like kind of just piecing the situation together, right? So he knows that uh, Laban has some cute daughters. Rachel's one of them. And so he's like trying to piece together this conversation. He's trying to like, you know what I'm talking about? Like, guys, if you, if you, you don't just go on a date without like ammo. You know what I'm saying? Like you want to piece together a nice conversation, like what school did you go to, um, you know, where did you grow up, that, you know, you, you might be doing some Facebook recon or Facebook stalking, in other words, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so, uh, so he, Jacob's just trying to piece together this opening line conversation with, with Rachel, and um, verse 7 says, Jacob says, look, it's, uh, it's still broad daylight, too early to round up the animals. Why don't you water the sheep and goats so they can get back out in the pasture? Verse 8 says, we, do, we can't water the animals until all the flocks have arrived. They replied, then the shepherds move the stone from the mouth. So they all move the stone from the mouth, and we water all the sheep and goats. So Jacob was still talking with them with, when Rachel arrived with her father's flock, for she was a shepherd. And because Rachel was his cousin, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and because the sheep and goats belonged to his uncle Laban, Jacob went over to the well and moved the stone. Wait. He just moved the stone by himself. And I don't know if you caught it, though. They usually would wait for a bunch of shepherds to move the stone. But he's just like, I don't know what it is with guys and feats of strength. But he's just like, you know what? Rachel's here. I'm going to move the stone by myself. So he, you know, he grabs it all by himself and moves it. And I don't know, like maybe, guys, try some tenderness. I don't know. Toughness never worked for me. But tenderness usually does. Uh, just a thought. Uh, I don't know what it is with guys and feats of strength. And then this is... Um, this one I scratched my head at, verse 11. Then Jacob kissed Rachel, which I get that, feet of strength, kissed Rachel. And then he wept out loud. The, that one I didn't really get. The kiss and cry, I don't think that was a great move. I, I wouldn't, like, use that move, you know. And then, you know, he's constructing this conversation with Rachel. And then his opening line is absolutely horrific. In verse 12, he explained to Rachel that, He was her cousin. That's not a great opening line. Unless you're from West Virginia. But, uh, (laughs) 
So Rachel quickly ran and told her father, Laban, <laughs> Verse 13 says, As soon as Laban heard his nephew Jacob had arrived, he ran out to meet him. He embraced him and kissed him and brought him home. When Jacob had told him his story, Laban explained, You are really my own flesh and blood. That, so that, all that is just background to lead up to. This is where comparison enters the story. After Jacob had stayed with Laban for about a month, Laban said to him, you shouldn't work here for me without pay just because we're relatives. Tell me how much your wages should be. So he already knew. We already knew. He, he had something in mind. He wanted to be married. He was, uh, the Bible says he was actually 70 to 80 years old at this time. So if you're in your 40s and you still haven't found your one, it's not over till it's over. You know what I'm saying? Um, he, he already knew that he came there for a wife. Verse 16 says, now Laban had two daughters. The older one was named Leah, and the younger one was named Rachel. And verse 17 says something kind of sad, um, this, which is not a compliment in any language or translation. There was no sparkle in Leah's eyes. That's pretty, uh, you know, I, I looked into this passage, and some people actually think there was, like, maybe something wrong with her eyes, like maybe a cyst or, or whatever. But, like, really, really, that's just not a compliment. And especially when the comparison comes in, but... Rachel had a beautiful figure and a lovely face. And that's the dagger in the heart of comparison. And the first point that I really want to bring to you today is where comparison begins, contentment ends. Where comparison begins, contentment ends. The moment I start comparing, that's the moment that I stop being content about what I, whatever I had. The fastest way, we all know this, the fastest way to kill something special is to compare it to something else. Like I was really thankful for my car. I got a free car from a family member. I was super thankful until, like, my roommate got a better car. I was super thankful. I mean, you might have been super thankful about a job opportunity or something like that until someone else got something that kind of just overshadowed what you just did. And you're like, oh, man, it just kills contentment. It kills your gratitude about the situation. Comparison kills your, your gratitude. And contentment is found if you switch it, contentment is found when you kill comparisons. So I don't know what that is for you. Maybe it's taking a social media break. I do that every once in a while just so I make sure I'm not addicted to social media. Or maybe it's unsubscribing from that magazine or that TV subscription or whatever. Stop watching HGTV or something like that. Like whatever it is for you. Um, the, the thing is to get rid of opportunities that lead to potential comparison. That's what I mean by killing comparison. Get rid of opportunities that lead to potential comparison. So verse 18, as we continue on, says, Since Jacob was in love with Rachel, he told her father, I'll work for you for seven years if you give me Rachel, your younger daughter, as my wife. And usually back then a lavish dowry, which is what you have to give um, your, your, your potential wife's family, a dowry was usually about four to seven months of work. But Jacob said, I just want to prove that I love Rachel. So he's like, I'm going to go seven years. So he just took, I mean, he knocked it out of the park on this one. So in verse 19, Laban said, agreed, exclamation point. I'd rather give her to you than anybody else, which is definitely a line that you want to hear from your father-in-law. I'd rather give her to you than anyone else. Stay and work with me. And um, the next verse is, Potentially the cutest verse in the, in the entire Bible uh, says this, verse 20. So Jacob worked seven years to pay for Rachel, but his love for her was so strong that it seemed to him but a few days. Everybody say, oh, so nice. But then, like a typical guy, he ruins it with the next verse. 
Finally, the time came for him to marry her. I fulfilled my agreement, Jacob said to Laban. Now give me my wife so I can sleep with her. (laughs) Yikes. Verse 22 says, so Laban invited everybody in the neighborhood and prepared for a wedding feast. And wedding feasts back then, I think, there was no ceremony, wedding ceremonies in the Bible, but there was always wedding feasts. And it was just basically this huge celebration. The entire village was involved. Of Everybody was partying that two families were becoming one. And that's what like a wedding reception is really, if you think about it. It's just a party that two families are becoming one. And there was just, a, it was just an awesome week-long party. Verse 23, but that night, when it was dark, Laban took Leah to Jacob, and he slept with her. And then in the morning, there was Leah. <laughs> I cannot imagine that moment. I would have freaked out. You know what I'm saying? And it's this ironic moment, though, when the trickster gets tricked. It's just this ironic moment where Jacob, who just tricked his older brother, just got tricked. And uh, we, I mean, we feel bad for Jacob. But sometimes it happens in our life too. We, we work so hard for something, seven years. We work so hard for something. And then when we get it, it just becomes, it's just not as good. Like maybe you're working so hard for a job, but then you get a promotion and you're working extra hours. There was Leah. Or you're, work, you, you know, you're working so hard for uh, a car, right? And then all the payments come and there was Leah. You know, it was this, this whole thing. Like, man, it's, it's, it's this unrealistic reality that we just kind of compare ourselves to and just live in the difference of. But really, it's just a moment of uncontentment or discontentment with what we really have. Um, So then Jacob said to Leah, or Laban, what is this that you've done for me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? I imagine that line was actually yelled. But it's not our custom here, Laban said. I don't know if you read the fine print, but it's not our custom here to marry off a younger daughter ahead of the firstborn, Laban replied. But wait until the bridal week is over. Then we'll give you Rachel too, provided that you promise to work another seven years for me. So Jacob agreed to work seven more years. A week after Jacob had married Leah, Laban gave him Rachel too. And continuing on verse 30. So Jacob slept with Rachel too. And here's a dagger, man. He loved her so much more than Leah. He stayed and worked for Laban the additional seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he enabled her to have children, but Rachel could not conceive. See, we see how in the situation, the situation could hurt Leah. She is feeling unloved, comparing her, her love, Rachel's love, with Jacob. It's just this whole comparison. Leah's feeling unloved. Rachel's feeling loved. And Leah's stuck. Leah's stuck in the middle. And I think everybody in this room has something in their life where they feel like a Rachel or a Leah. Everyone in this, in, in this room has somewhere they, they feel secondary they feel compared to, they feel like they're not as good in. And this could be the thing that you're actually striving the most towards. And that's when it hurts the most. When you're just feeling this comparison, like I'll never be good enough. I'll never be them. I'll never be great enough. And that's what she feels like in this, in this way. But we see when she was unloved, God enabled her to have children. That's just the principle that God uses. He selects what man rejects. God selects what man rejects. You see it when Jesus heals people that are blind or people that are um, cast out leopards or something like that in, in a community. You see it there, but he selects what, what man rejects. And he sees Leah for who she really is. And I wish I could tell you in that moment that Leah was cool. And she just was like, wow, God, 
thank you so much for this. I'll never compare again. But that's just not what happened. And this is my second point today. Comparison breeds insecurity and self-doubt. Comparison breeds insecurity and self-doubt. And this is the crushing blow of comparison. I have a quote that really hit me hard. If you throw that one on the screen. It says, learn how to love the 98% of your life that is great rather than spin circles, spin in circles trying to chase the 2% that you don't like. And that's what comparison is. It's this constant treadmill. It's this constant running and getting nowhere. It's this constant cycle of, man, I'll never be good enough. But even if you, even if you get there, it will never be as great as you, uh, as you expected it to be. There, um, can you throw the Jim Carrey quote on the screen? Jim Carrey is a, a, like a multi-billionaire. And he said this quote. I think it's like really cool. Trent, if you would, just throw that, like, uh, that quote on the screen. It's towards the, ba- the bottom. Um, I hope everybody could get rich and famous and will have everything that they ever dreamed of so that they know that's not the answer. Isn't that crazy coming from one of the richest people, one of the most famous people in the world? Really, it's this cycle. We put ourselves on this treadmill, this constant longing and desire to move forward, but you're getting nowhere. And honestly, I found, and just in preparing for this message, I found this to be super applicable. Celebrate instead of compare. Man, you have a great life and great finances, or, or you have like something worked out for you, celebrate it. Even if, if I had this, this really dark moment, just in a moment of authenticity and, and confession, something happened to a friend of mine recently that was kind of a bump in the road, and I secretly celebrated it. And I was just like, God, what is that? It's just this dark, wh- why did I just do that? But it's this, this constant cycle to get ahead, this constant treadmill to get ahead. And really, that's not what it is. Celebrate instead of compare. Celebrate instead of of compare. And the irony switches here in the story. Verse 32 says, so Leah became pregnant and gave birth to his son. She named him Reuben for she said, the Lord has noticed, the Lord has noticed my misery and now my husband will love me. That really comparison gives you unrealistic expectations of reality. No son in the world could have make Jacob love her. But I think that we do the same thing. If I get this, maybe I'll be happy. If I get a better car, maybe I'll be happy. If I get skinnier, maybe I'll be happy. If I get better at this, maybe I'll be happy. If I get more likes on my posts or, or friends, maybe I'll be happy. And it's this constant treadmill of comparison that we put ourselves on. Maybe if I just do this, I'll be happy. If I just do this, I'll be happy. And it's just this constant treadmill. Maybe this time, maybe this time. She soon became pregnant, 33 said, she soon became pregnant and gave birth to another son. She named him Simeon, for she said, the Lord heard that I was unloved and give, gave me another, and has given me another son. 34 said, then she became pregnant a third time and gave birth to another son. He was named Levi, for she said, surely this time my husband will feel affection for me, since I have given him three sons. Maybe this time, maybe this time, maybe this time. Once again, Leah became pregnant and gave birth to another son. She named him Judah. For she said, now I'm going to praise the Lord. And she stopped having children. Maybe this time, maybe this time, maybe this time. How many times have we, you told yourself that in a different situation? But when Rachel saw that she was not bearing children, Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister. And so she said to Jacob, give me children or I'll die. 
Which is crazy because Leah's looking at Rachel and saying, I, could, I want her beauty. Rachel's looking at Leah and said, I want, her, I want children like she has children. It's, that's what comparison is. You never look at somebody's life and say, I want that whole picture. Usually it's like, I want their car or their house, but their family situation's not okay. So I'll compare to this family. It's, you're never looking at somebody and wanting their whole entire picture because that's what comparison is. Comparison, I, um, one of my favorite pastors said it like this. He said, we compare our behind the scenes to other people's highlight reels. We compare our behind the scenes to other people's highlight reels. How true is that? And that's the world of social media. And speaking of social media, um, I just want to you know, give you an example here. Are you guys familiar with Pinterest? Who uses Pinterest here? Still anybody uses Pinterest. Okay, nice. I'm glad you guys still use Pinterest. That really works out for this message. A socially oriented photo sharing site in the form of an online pin board. That's the definition of Pinterest. I have found a better definition of Pinterest by Lisa Turkhurst, who is a um, women's speaker. She said, Pinterest is a visually driven social media platform strategically designed for nonstop 24-7 uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, reminders that your kids are not as well-dressed as your neighbor's kids. Your home is not, is not decorated in the most, uh, is, is your home is decorated in the most amateur fashion ima- imaginable. That the pictures you take are bland and artless. You did a terrible job planning your wedding, and you live a generally tedious, monotonous existence, unlike everybody else whose lives are category awesome at all times. <laughs> That's what Pinterest is in this world today. So there's some people on the internet that actually are honest about Pinterest. Um, there's this like blog called Pinterest Fails. And so I pulled a couple pictures off of Pinterest Fails, right? Um, let's show the first picture. This was um, a cake castle. And that looks awesome, right? That looks really cool. But this is what actually happened when they tried it. <laughs> uh, let's hit the next one. The next one was uh, biscuits. Perfect for Easter. This is what actually happened, though. When he put it in the oven, that was wild. You know? <laughs> demons popping up. Uh, and then the third one is hilarious. It looks cute on, on the left, but the right looks like a blue demon spitting out a cookie. It's weird, man. That's the thing, though. Show your best, hide the rest. Show your best, hide the rest. That's what Pinterest is. That's what, that's what social media is. Show your best and hide the rest. That's what it really is. And I feel like in the story, if Leah and Rachel could have just had an honest conversation about their problems, about their like, insecurities and stuff, it would have been okay. I feel like they would have moved on. And maybe that's like, what you need to do. Maybe it's somebody you need to talk to or your husband or wife you need to keep accountable with. Maybe it's just have an honest conversation with somebody and say, hey, I really struggle with comparison in this area. Would you just help me keep, keep me accountable in this? I think um, one of the, like, like I said before, celebrate instead of compare. Here, here's something else. Compliment instead of compare. Compliment instead of compare. Man, like even if somebody gets blessed with the same blessing that you wanted, like they won the, the car or whatever, I don't know. Hey, that's awesome. You won the car. You deserve it. Instead of harboring, harboring bitterness in your heart celebrate, compliment instead of compare. Identify your, what your main source of comparison is and cut it out. In verse 2, Jacob became angry with her and said, am I in the place of God who has kept you from having children? Now, the next 12 verses I'm not going to go into, but basically Leah and Rachel hire surrogates to have children for them, and then they claim them for their own. It's just crazy. It's literally comparison gone crazy. So verse 14 says, during the wheat harvest, 
Reuben, one of Leah's sons, went out to the fields and found some mandrake plants, which he brought to his mother Leah. Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's, son's mandrakes. Now, mandrakes were a root plant believed to um, boost fertility in that time. So, so Reuben gives them to Leah, and Rachel's like, hey, like, I don't have any kids. Can you please, like, help me out? Like, can you, you know, share some of your, your mandrakes with me? And you would have thought, you would think, like, um, Leah would actually do that and be like, oh, you're right. Here you go. That's not what happened. But in verse 15, but she said to her, wasn't it enough that you took away my husband? Will you take my, my son's mandrakes too? Very well, Rachel said. And then she does this weird thing. She pimps out her husband. He can sleep with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. That's so weird because the third point is this. Comparison turns friends into enemies. That, like this whole scenario, this whole situation is very extreme. But when you compare yourself to somebody, you're actually almost like putting like a wall up and saying like, man, I hope, like I said earlier, I hope they secretly fail so they can kind of be on my level and I can be above them. Comparison turns friends into enemies, companions into competition. And really envy, a good definition that I have of envy is resenting God's goodness in other people's life and ignoring God's goodness in your own. And then in this moment of turning your friends to enemies, you just become super ungrateful for what you have. Why can't I just have that? Why can't I just have that style? Why can't I just have that talent or that car? Or why can't I just be more like that person? Why can't I just be more suave in conversation or more relaxed in situations? Or you always can, there's always something to compare yourself to other people with. And really, if you, if you had that one thing, like Jim Carrey said earlier, it only gives you temporary satisfaction. It's not the end goal. It's not, we can never just get that thing and suddenly become happy. But, because um, when you compare your situation to someone else's, you diminish the value of your own. And you're depleting God's purpose for you. And you're trying to impress people who don't care. And it's easy for us to compare today with numerical accuracy, how many likes, how many everything that other people have. It's so easy to get entangled in this mindset. And I don't want to give you a solution-based, you know, package to send you home with today. I don't want to do that for you. I don't think it's that simplistic. But I do want to give you this scripture of how God wants us to view comparison. It's found in Hebrews 12, and it says this. Would you put that on the screen? Therefore, since we are surrounded by a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. Let us run with the endurance our race, not somebody else's race. You're not living their life. You're living your life. Verse 2 says this. We do this by keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. That's it. That's the solution that I want you to take home today. That's the solution. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Run your race. And that, that's where you'll find your purpose, your calling in life, what God has for you. He can bless you if you're running your, in, in your lane, but he can't bless you if you're trying to be someone else. He, somebody, he has blessings for other people, but he, he, has, he has specific blessings for you. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding our shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor 
beside God's throne. When you leave this room today, I guarantee you, you're going to be tempted to compare. You're going to be. It's a certain thing. Right now, I want you to come up in your own way with a line or a slogan or a something that you're going to tell yourself every time you start to be tempted to compare. And this is not the savior of the situation. Jesus is the savior of the situation. But that's what he wants you to do practically. So maybe it's um, every time you start thinking you're going to be comparing yourself to somebody, I will keep my eyes fixed on Jesus. Or maybe it's there's no win in comparison. Or maybe it's I'm a child of God. Because we've all been there. We've all been in these moments and thought like, oh man, I'm a child of God. I'm not going to compare. I'm going to go out and just be thankful for what I have. And then a week later, we are back to where we began. We all have those moments. Because that comparison is going to happen again. It's going to happen again. That car is going to drive past you on the highway or you're going to see that person's feed on Facebook and you're just going to be stuck in this self-doubt, insecure sense of who you really are. And that's not what God has for you. God wants you to be certain of who you really are in him. It says, 22, then God remembered Rachel and he listened to her and enabled her to conceive. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son and said, God has taken away my disgrace. He thought in a moment like, Rachel, you got it. Praise God. That's the, you know, celebrate instead of compare. But then she goes right back into verse 24 and she says, she named him Joseph and said, may the Lord add to me another son. The instant that she got what she wanted, she was already uncontent with what she had. And I don't know where you are this morning, whether you're content or you're incontent with who you are or what you have. I know that God has a plan that's specific for every single one of you. And he didn't come to this earth and die on a cross so that you could just compare yourself to somebody else. Because honestly, if you, if you, th- if you compare, your, you have this complex of not thinking you're good enough. But Jesus said, you'll never be good enough. I didn't come so you can be good enough. I came because you would never be good enough. And in this moment, that's so easy for all of us to realize that we'll never be good enough for Jesus Christ. But Jesus said, I sent my son down to become like you so that he could love you and save you from never never being good enough. In him you find your satisfaction. In him you find your contentment. If, if comparison was the mold for, for, for satisfaction in life, Jesus broke it when he came to be just like us. Would you stand with me in this place? We're about to sing this great song. I'm a child of God. Over your situation, would you sing this over your situation? that you are chosen and not forsaken, that you are a child of God. Would you just, this in this moment, would you just be open to singing that 
over your life.